Hello, and welcome to another episode of For the Love of Sports. My name is Michael Brazil. This is a show where we get to talk about sports, we get to talk about business, and we get to talk about everything in between. Wherever you're listening, however you're listening, you know what to do. Five-star review. Make sure that you're, you're giving us a like and subscribe on YouTube. Please, anything, you guys already know what you're doing. The more important part today, I have the incredible Rob Nelson. He's the founder and creator of Big League Chew, for performer professional baseball player. Rob, how are you doing today, man? Uh, doing well. Thanks for having me on. This is fun. Pleasure is all mine. I mean, I don't even know how many times I was telling you before. I don't even know how many times I've bought Big League Chew, chewed Big League Chew. You know, the other kid in the dugout would get it and I'd get jealous. So I'm very, very grateful and excited about this conversation. This should be a very fun one. But Rob, the first question I have for everybody on the For the Love of Sports podcast is, why do you love sports so much? You know, it just worked for me. I was the youngest of three brothers. My two brothers were athletes. They'd play catch with me even when I was terrible. Uh, my dad was a fan, played a little bit of baseball, but but not at a higher level. And we just loved the game. We grew up on Long Island. You know, the Mets were brand new. Uh, the Yankees had Whitey Ford. I was blonde. I was left-handed. I thought I was going to be the next number 16 at the big ballpark. It, it just came to me, particularly baseball, because I'm not very fleet of foot, and uh, I wasn't particularly strong. But being a left-hander, uh, just everything seemed to work for me. I was able to to do things I wouldn't have done. I mean, I played a little bit of high school basketball, but but baseball was my first love, and it took me a long way. Pretty crazy. I love that. I was also – so I threw right-handed, but for some reason my grandma taught me how to swing left-handed, so I was one of those kids. Um, That's sweet. It was nice. I was super fast, too, so it was helpful. Uh, my swing wasn't very strong, but I got there, and that's the important part. That's what we were trying to do. So I always, I love baseball. It's my first love. I'm a big Mets fan. Uh, there's there's nothing like watching a nine-inning game when your team's kicking ass. There's really nothing like And then there's nothing like being a Mets fan because the Mets are terrible. So that, that part is, you know, is what it is, and a lot of character building. Uh, that's what we like to say on the Internet. Um, but I'm more curious, like, again, you, you perform a professional baseball player. Obviously, you had your heroes. You, you did what you wanted to do. Where, where does the idea for Big League Chew come from? How, how does that even happen? I think it came from way back when I was 10 or 11 playing baseball in Massapequa on Island. I was on a team called the Red Sox. One of my favorite fans, when I, was, I was a big fan of Nellie Fox, second baseman for the Chicago White Sox, because my last name is Nelson. And like my two older brothers, I was Nellie. And I wanted to be like the real Nellie. I used this thick handle bat. And I, I had the big wad in my cheek the way Nellie Fox did on his bubblegum trading card. And quite frankly, I wasn't quite sure what that was in his cheek when I was like 10 or 11. But I knew that if I got a log of bubblegum, which is what you could get in 1959, 1960, you could look as cool as the real Nellie. And I think that's where the whole thing emanated from. I'm 10, 11 years old, playing on a good Little League team and looking the part. And that was another thing I loved about baseball. It was kind of a stylish kind of thing. And so it just came to me naturally. I think the left-handed thing had a lot to do with it. I got to play first base, and then I started pitching, and the ball moved a little bit. I never threw very hard, but I had a pretty good high school career. Uh, got recruited by one college. that Nobody wanted soft-throwing left-handers. Uh, spent a year at Nassau Community College before I ended up at Cornell University and, and got to pitch in the Ivy League. The funny thing is I only had one good year of college baseball. It was my senior year, and I really fell in love with the game. I said, I don't want to stop playing. And back then, 1971, there weren't adult leagues to play in, to speak of. 
And as luck would have it, I overheard two guys in a pub in Ithaca, New York. The Someplace Else Tavern is where this whole story really begins. It's funny because the Odyssey begins in Ithaca. You know, uh, Homer leaves uh, Ithaca, and that's what I did. I went from Ithaca to Cape Town, and I played uh, for a, a local club there, the Varsity Old Boys. I taught at the Hertzlius School, middle school English and math and science, and pitched every weekend and had an absolute ball. But the fact that I had to go 10,000 miles tells you something, that I, that nobody was looking out for Rob Nelson. You know, nobody was drafting me. Nobody was giving me a whiff. And this opportunity came, and it was it was just perfect. To be 25 years old and, and pitching as well as you can and getting headlines every Monday morning and then having middle school kids saying, hey, Mr. Nelson's kind of a cool guy. He's got a job after 3 o'clock. Uh, it, it was just amazing to me. So I was there for two seasons and had a couple of great seasons. My dad sent me a, a packet of sports clippings. One of them was from the Sporting News with a little article that said the Portland Mavericks invite anybody to try out. And I qualified for anybody. So I ended up going from Cape Town, went to Long Island and did some substitute teaching for a month to make a few dollars. And then ended, ended up in Portland, Oregon, trying out for a team called the Portland Mavericks as featured in the Netflix film, The Battered Bastards of Baseball. I got to tell you, a lot of my life is like the film Forrest Gump. It's like everywhere I went. I went, when I went to Cape Town, they really didn't have a job for me. And one of the guys, Abel Levitt, was on the board at Hertzlia School. He said they need a, a teacher for, for one year. And it just it just fit. It was like I was in a movie. You know, like when somebody says, I've got a band and I've got a barn. Let's put on a show. From the from when I was a small boy, that's what happened. So I went to Portland and didn't make the team, which was a big stroke of luck because it forced me to create the Little Maverick Baseball School. Bing Russell, the owner of the team, uh, was all for it. And I said, look, I know I pitched myself off the team during the tryouts, but I have this idea. Would you mind if I started a baseball day camp here in Portland? I'll use the guys on the team that don't play very much. So from 9 to noon, we can do a kids camp. And we'll brand it after the team. And Bing was all over that. He, he just thought it was a really good idea. And again, there's another guy, Bing Russell, who wanted to be a big star in Hollywood, ended up being the sheriff on Bonanza for, I don't know, 14 or 15 years. He always said his biggest accomplishment was introducing his son, Kurt Russell, to Walt Disney. And of course, Kurt's had himself a pretty good career. You know, He and I are both in our 70s, and we, we've, we haven't looked back. He's had a little better luck than I've had, but I've got no complaints. That was kind of a long answer. Sorry about that. I love it. I have a bunch of follow-up questions. I think that's it's a good story, though, right? Like, as you said, you could tie it back to Homer, and, and not, not the Simpsons Homer, that guy from the Odyssey, right? You could, yeah. you could tie it back to Cape Town, Africa. Like, what the heck are the chances that you're in South Africa? Like, how does that happen? It's just all these little things that happen along the way. I don't, I don't believe in coincidences. I believe in working very hard and putting yourself in the right place at the right time, and that's what you've been able to do many times over and over and over again and it's just funny how the 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 opportunities just kept kept coming up for you clearly you're a nice guy you're willing to work hard you're willing to do things so things are going to happen especially if you keep putting that energy out into the universe so i am curious um so we never made it to the part of actually making big league chew though so, so you do all these things i guess and then you know what what exactly happens how do you 
Where I, oh, no, I do want to go back to one thing that you said. So you were talking about, like, being like Nelly Fox, right? Yeah, the, the, whatever that wad in his lip was, you were like him. You didn't know what it was. You had a bunch of bubble gum. I always loved that about Little League because you could point to all the kids and be like, oh, he watched a lot of uh, El Duque, right? Like, all the kids that <laughs> exactly. pitched like El Duque. You could see all the guys that, for whatever reason, swung like Craig Council, right? They had the bat all the way above their head. So it was always funny. Uh, Gary Sheffield, I guess that's a little bit easier. Uh, it was always funny in Little League, and clearly, you know, from – you know, with the time that you were doing it, too, you know, I played Little League in the 90s. Nothing changed, and I hope nothing is still changing. I hope it is all the same. Absolutely agree. I modeled my motion after Whitey Ford. And for the longest time, I had the big windup. You know, not a lot of people talk about when Jackie Robinson stole home and Yogi Berra always said he was out in the in the World Series. But it was because Whitey had this ridiculously long windup. He, he was kind of like Satchel Paige. Everybody had that preliminary before they let the ball go. So I love the theater of that whole thing. I don't like the pitchers today who just kind of throw from the stretch all the time. There's not much fun in that. There's no drama. You know, there's no buildup to the thing. So the theater part of baseball really attracted me. And what, you know, Branch Rickey famously once said that luck is the residue of design. And I think what you were talking about is just being at the right time and the right place. I think I had a pretty good ear and a pretty good eye for what the possibilities were. And I figured out how I could fit in. And, and the fact that I wasn't able, I had one good year at Cornell. I shut out Princeton and I thought, you know, two months later I'd get drafted by somebody and, and the call never came. So what do you do next? And, for me to go to a, a, a great city like Cape Town and play for a great club and get to pitch in big games in front of a thousand people who, I mean, a friend of mine, an old teammate said that, you know, a lot of people in Cape Town think you're the greatest left-hander they've ever seen. So, you know, you got to pick your spots, you know, it's like doing summer stock. You know, they say, well, that guy's going to be the next Robert Redford. And uh, so you got to have a little bit of luck, but you also have to be realistic. I mean, when I went out to the Portland Mavericks after having had two great seasons in South Africa, I thought I was going to win 10 games in a short season. Bing was going to sell my contract to the Yankees. And as a late bloomer, like a Warren Spahn, I'd be a big leaguer rookie at maybe 28 or 29 years of age. And I couldn't get anybody out when I went out to Portland. I got hit like a pinata. So the reason I did so great in South Africa was, number one, they didn't have that many left-handers. And number two, the players were relatively good, but not compared to guys who played top baseball and 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 you know, and, and then in the minor leagues. So Absolutely. It's such an awesome story, though. And everybody can relate to that, right? Everybody can think, well, if I just... If I just get there, then I can show my stuff, and anything's possible from that point, right? Yeah, maybe maybe I'll be a rookie in the Yankees when I'm 29. Anything's possible, right? And then, unfortunately, you find out it seems very quickly that that probably wasn't going to happen. So when you found that out, when you realized that, you know, how did that pivot come about to say, I really like gum. Why don't we look into this gum business a little well, bit? Well, you know, I think the thing in Portland that, that struck me, I said to Bing when I didn't do well in the tryouts, I know I pitched myself off the roster because I didn't do well during the tryouts, but I said, I'd like to stick around. Can I throw batting practice for $10 a day? And I see that you've got a selling tickets by phone campaign. And uh, I would like to do that as well. And he said, yeah, you could do both. And, and then I came up with the idea with the baseball day camp. The thing is, if people see that you've got an attitude that anything's possible, Bing saw it in my eyes that I really love the game, but he probably also realized from day one, I wasn't going to help the team on the mound. I was going to help the team in other ways. I ended up being the pitching coach. I ended up running the tryouts for 325 guys. 
because I had a good sense of math and organization, and I ran the Little Maverick Baseball School. I just happened to have a knack for finding something that would fit for me and, and, and that would take me to the next level, not even knowing what the next level was going to be. I mean, quite frankly, I was with the Mavericks for three seasons. I had one win in three years. And when we won that one game, Kurt Russell took us all to the bullpen tavern behind Stenner Field, behind the ballpark, and we celebrated like I was Madison Baumgartner and I just won Game 7 of the World Series. And I will say this, there was no touch of irony. It wasn't like, geez, it's about time Nelly won a ball game. It, the guys were sincerely happy for me. And that really that made me feel great. Fast forward to, you know, what was it, 2014 when the Battered Bastards of Baseball premiered at the Sundance Film Festival and then Netflix bought the rights. Whenever we did premieres, we did it at the Tribeca uh, in New York City. We did it in Portland, Oregon at the Art Museum. A lot of Maverick teammates showed up. And I've got a lot of FaceTime in that documentary because I watched a lot. I was in the bullpen. I didn't play that much. And my memory, quite frankly, was better than a lot of the guys on the team. But there wasn't one guy in the Portland Mavericks and said, geez, how come you're in that film so much? You weren't very good. And, and the guys just knew that I wanted to be part of something that was really special. And there was a commonality there with the Mavericks. They didn't care if you went to Cornell or if you, you came from a community college or you didn't play college ball at all. It, the, the thing that mattered was the game. And we led the league in fun. And, and that's what Bing wanted. And, and, and that's why we broke all those attendance records. I and mean, when you see that film and you see those crowds, you got six or eight thousand people watching short season single A baseball. Uh, it, it, it was just a miracle. It really was. It was magical, truthfully. No, it's it's yeah, minor league baseball. There's something like it, man. Like I'm I'm grateful. I'm, I live right here in Summer Somerset, New Jersey. So I have the Somerset Patriots now the Double A affiliate of the Yankees. I haven't been able to go to a game in the last couple of years. Obviously, some stuff's been going on, but. I used to go all the time when I was young, right? It's so much easier for people to get there. I just went to a Mets game. It took me two and a half hours to drive to Queens from my apartment. Sure. I don't want to do that often. I never want to do that, honestly. That's not worth my time at all. But I could drive 10 minutes down the road and go to a game, have some fun, drink a beer, eat a hot dog on a nice summer night. Like There's nothing like it. And as you say, the fun aspect of it, I actually had the opportunity to talk to uh, a gentleman from the Savannah Bananas. I don't know how much you pay attention to what they're doing. Jesse down there. Awesome. Jesse Cole, right? Incredible. Like, they're, they're taking over the world by storm. Like, they, they just broke a record last night, I think, if I'm not mistaken, for the most people dressed as bananas in one place at one time or so. Just, like, ridiculous stuff like that. But that's the best part about minor league baseball. Like, obviously, it's baseball, so we're all going to love it. I don't care if I know the players. I don't know. I don't care how good they are. I'm going to watch it because I love baseball. So then all that other stuff that you can get involved and have fun with, that's what's going to bring the people to town. That's what's going to bring people to have fun and enjoy the sport more. Not watching it on TV. Yes, I'm going to watch the Mets every night. And half the time I'm going to be happy, half the time I'm going to be sad. Being able to go to the game and actually see it and feel it and just enjoy the fun around it, that's what's going to grow the game of baseball, in my opinion. There's no question about that. And and the fact that the personalities on the team and the, the banter that goes on and the bullpen discussions. That we used to play word games used in the outfield signs. How many words could you make out of the Fred Meyer grocery store stock? And, and dopey things. And I would hear things that stayed in my head. Dick Rustick, one of our left-handed relievers, he described the Maverick bus as the commode of transportation. That's a funny line. And it stayed with me. And that was like, you know, like 1975 when he said that. Reggie Thomas uh, hits a double in the gap and pulls up with a pulled hamstring at first base. And two pitches later, steals second base. 
Well, the reason he came up with the fake hamstring was the Greek sandwich shop across from the ballpark, Suvlaki Stop, would give a ball player a Suvlaki sandwich if they stole a base. Reggie stole two bases in one inning, and, and Jim Bouton turned to me during the game and he said, Reggie just doubled his income tonight. I mean, it's hilarious that guys could figure that stuff out. If you look at, at the film and you see Joe Garza getting on top of the dugout with a broom because we're about to sweep a team in a four-game series, it was not scripted. He saw the broom at the end of the dugout. He climbed on top, and he became an icon. A Joe Garza became synonymous with a sweep night. People were showing up with their own brooms. And the spontaneity of that is what Bing Russell loved. And there's something about an owner who is that open-minded that attracts people almost like the old film Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Everybody goes to this certain place because they think something is going to happen. What are the odds that, that one of the catchers who tries out for the Mavs is Jim Swanee Swanson, a left-handed catcher? You couldn't script that out of Hollywood. You know, Bing said to me, he said, you know, you're left-handed. He, yeah, I know. I know. And I love the guy. Swanee passed away about, oh, three, four months ago. And the tributes to Jim were just great. And he was like me. You know, I had one win in three years. I think Swanee had two hits in three years. But the fans loved him. He became the third base coach, one of my, I would say, left-hand men in the Little Maverick Baseball School. The kids loved him. And how could you not? The guy loved the game. I think that's another thing that separates baseball from all these other sports is there's so much, I don't want to say downtime, because, right, there's always the game within the game. You're always thinking. But the opportunity to, you know, a first baseman to speak to whoever comes to first base, and you can kind of have a little bit of banter. You can have that back and forth. You know, it was put perfectly to me. There's so much extra area to breathe in a baseball game that the baseball players have best personalities, right? You're sitting in the dugout when, you, you know, your, tur your turn up to bat. Like, all right, you're going to bat once every two innings tops, maybe? Yep. like. So you have all this time to talk and share stories and just say, you know, hear and, and say the things that you see going on. And baseball players develop this ability to tell stories and crack jokes and have more fun all within the opportunity of making millions of dollars, you know, talking about MLB players. And, and that ability to then just be able to share that with the people, with the crowd, with their families, with their loved ones. There's, there's no other sport you're going to have that. You know, defense and football, right, or offense, when the other side's on the ball, you're just squarely involved in the game and what's happening. It's not the same with baseball, basketball, same thing. There's just something about baseball players that just gives that ability to develop so much more personality, in my opinion, than any of the other sports in, in the world. No question about that. Jim Bouton said that only baseball could produce a big league chew. We're in the dugout, summer of 77, looking at guys chewing and, and slobbering over Redman and whatever else they had in their mouth. And Jim turned to me and he said, did you ever try that stuff? And I said, I tried it once. I remember the guy who gave it to me, Danny Smith from Central Connecticut State. We were in Johannesburg. I said, I chewed it for maybe a minute, and I couldn't throw batting practice you know, for 30 minutes later because it made me ill. And Jim said the same thing. He said, tobacco never made sense to me. And again, you talk about the pace of the game. It was an inning, maybe two innings later. I said to Jim, suppose we shredded gum and put it in a pouch. We'd look as cool as these guys but we wouldn't make ourselves ill. And Bouton, being the businessman and savvy guy he was, he, he said the magic words. He said, number one, I love that idea. And number two, he said, Rob, I could sell that idea. And then the third thing, again, about an, an inning later, he said, what would you call it? And again, spur of the moment, picked it out of the air. And I remember responding to Jim. It was in the form of a question. I said, I don't know, Big League Chew? Like with a big question mark at the end. And Bouton said, 
that's it. I mean, it's hard to believe that it's going to be that good. It's funny. I'm on my phone here, and I just see one of the Maverick Bat Boys is just texting me now. <laughs> what are the odds? Of it? He lives in San Juan Capistrano, California. It, the, the cosmic tumblers are clicking out there. Somebody knew that we were going to be talking. Oh, that's funny. Anyway, getting back man. to your point about how much time you had, it's, it's not only in between pitches and innings, but on the bus trips and having breakfast and just shooting the breeze with, with you know, I'm, I remember being in Bellingham, Washington, summer of 77, August of 77. We're at a diner that we had a hitch to because the Mavericks had been tossed out of so many hotels. It was 12 miles from the ballpark. Dean Hinchliffe, a right-handed reliever, Kurt Russell and I, got hitched a ride on a pickup truck. And we went and had breakfast and we're just shooting the breeze. I remember the waitress came over and said, one of the cooks says one of you guys is famous. And Kurt said, we're the Portland Mavericks. We're playing the Bellingham Mariners tonight. You ought to come over and see the game. And left it at that. And there was no touch of of being a wise guy or big league and anybody. Kurt didn't want to talk about Disney films. He wanted to talk about double steals and how about those girls in the right field uh, seats last night? You know, he, he was like a typical ball player. And, and a, I think one of the reasons he loved baseball so much was because of that banter, because he was a natural st- storyteller. And, and it, it just came in the Russell family. Bing was just a magician at it. He was just the best. But you're absolutely right. The, the more time you have, and you can't call it dead time. It's kind of lively time. But you have to be you have to be have your eyes and ears open because you're gonna miss something. Yep, exactly. And I think that's what that's what contributes to it, right? Like you have to be focused and paying attention. But you can have that okay, okay, that's the pitch. I threw curveball O two on the dirt. All right, that's nice. All right, well now you have a couple seconds. So then you can kinda of go back to the conversation as you said, two innings later. I don't know. How about Big League Chew? That sounds great. That sounds awesome. So, I, I yeah, also, by the way, having Kurt Russell show up in this conversation is always kind of nice, too. Maybe I'll tag him on Instagram and see if he, uh, he reposts this. But um, with that, I guess, so you start having this conversation, and yeah, it sounds great. Everybody's got a, an idea, right? You can ask anyone on the street, you have a million idea? Yeah, I have a million dollar idea. Here it is. But it's the execution of it. So, how do you go from in the bullpen one night, kind of shooting the breezes, you said, oh, this sounds like a fun thing, and your buddy, you know, saying, I think I could sell it, that sounds fun, to, what are what are the next steps there? What are the things that you actually do to see if this makes sense? You know, if Bing Russell led the league in fun, my life, I kind of led the league in serendipity. I don't make the team. I start a baseball day camp. What are the odds that Scott Chernoff is the son of Dan Chernoff, a Cornell guy, a prominent trademark and patent attorney who basically does the work for nothing to help me get launched. So all of a sudden I've got a trademark application in Jim says, I'm trying to sell the gum back on the East coast. Nobody really understands that you've got to make some gum. January of 1979. I read an article in people magazine, small company in Arlington, Texas uh, is makes a do it yourself bubblegum kit. More than a handful of people said, I think you may be the only guy that bought anything from that company because nobody can find it. The, the, the history of it. We did a thing last summer on the uh, uh, the History Channel. Did a little segment on, on the history of Big League Chew. And they found the guy on like public television in, in outside of Dallas, Texas. Uh, so th- they know the guy existed. But they also agreed. They don't know anybody who ever bought a case of make-your-own bubblegum. And I made root beer flavor and and uh, maple flavored because I thought the brown would be cool. And when Jim took it to a division of Wrigley, they said, we love the idea. We love the packaging. 
brown gum will never sell anywhere. You guys stick to the ideas. We'll stick to the gum. And I think that was key for me that I learned early on that I do a lot of things well, but more, many, many more not well. And I gave the uh, the opportunity, can't say I gave the opportunity, the opportunities came up so a Dan Chernoff could do the legal work. Jim did the sales work. Bing helped me with the promotions. Todd Field, the bat boy who became a writer-director in Hollywood, we made the first batch of Big League Chew in his mom's kitchen. I would do want to give a shout-out. Her name is Candy Field. You couldn't get that out of Central Casting. Come on. She turned 83 yesterday. My daughter, Happy Janie birthday, Nelson, Candy. delivered flowers that she uh, she chose the colors herself and drove out to southeast Portland to Mrs. Field. I was still in Chicago at the uh, at the candy show, and I said, Janie, you have to help me out. It's Mrs. Field's birthday. But she gave me the kitchen and let me use her rolling pin and everything else I needed to make the gum. And uh, again, it all just fell into place. But in terms of the execution of the stuff, it was the people who knew, knew how to do stuff. Jim found this division of Wrigley, Jim Bouton. Uh, uh, we're in Naperville, Illinois. Uh, small division of Wrigley called Amaral Confections. They did what I call gimmick gum, like ouch bubble gum that looked like a Band-Aid or Mork from Orc bubble gum with little messages from, from the planet Orc. What else did they do? Bubble tape. They did goofy stuff. The two big things that are left, Wrigley held on to bubble tape. But when I left Wrigley and went to the Ford Gum Company in Buffalo, New York, I brought Big League Chew along. And it's it's one of those things that I knew I had, as my dad called it, lightning in a pouch. And I think another reason that the brand succeeded was I didn't get into Big League sunflower seeds or root beer or, or, or caramel corn. I, I just knew... I always call Big League Chews like the WD-40 of confection. You know, WD-40 is made by the WD-40 company. They make one thing and they make it really well. Well, that's what Ford Gum does for me. We make shredded gum. And now, big improvement, we have little bubblegum balls if you want a bucket full for your, you know, a team bucket. But beyond that, that's all I do. If 7-Eleven ever wanted to do a special month of a, a grape Big League Chew Slurpee, I'd say, yeah, that's cool. That's like a tribute to the to, to the brand. But I, I just wasn't interested in making a soft drink or a candy bar or anything like that. I got lucky once, and I, I just stayed stayed the course. I stayed in my lane, I guess. Far from lucky, Rob. Far from lucky. We, okay. We've gone over this story the last 25 minutes. There, there's a lot of, uh, as you said, a lot of hard work. A little bit of serendipity, but again, I don't believe in coincidence. You put yourself in the right place at the right time. You're doing the right thing, and I think that's fantastic. And I, I agree, man. I mean, like, there's talk to any little leaguer, talk to anybody who played little league baseball. It was, everything was it was literally our big league chew was like currency in those dugouts <laughs> back in the day, right? Who had it? What flavor did you have? Let's trade. Okay, I chewed this for like the first three innings. I want to chew something else. Oh, can I have two bucks for my mom to go buy it? There is. I I have so many memories around little league baseball that. Every single one of them that I can think of has Big League Chew in it. And I think it's awesome. And I want to say thank you for that. That's why I really wanted to, I mean, outside of just a fun interview, just be able to say thank you. Because there's so many so many things that I can point back to and remember. is Actually, that day I was chewing the grape version. And it was delicious. That was always my favorite. My favorite, too. The sour, 
sour apple, right? If I'm not mistaken, yeah, sure. there's a sour apple flavor. I, grape was always my favorite, and then obviously you had the you had the OG, uh, which is always good too. But man, it was there it was just the best. And anybody who's played little league baseball, there's nothing like it when your parents were like, "All right, you got it. You know, you got three hits today. You didn't make any errors in the field. I'll get you a pouch next game." How's that sound? And that was always. Uh, that was always fun for me. So I want to say thank you for that, man. That was great. I, I appreciate that. The funny thing about Big League Chew is anywhere I go, whether it's a bartender or, or in Oregon, somebody pumping my gas, just anybody I meet has a Big League Chew story. And sometimes it's when they hit a three-run homer, and sometimes yep. it's when they got hit in the head. It doesn't matter. Yeah. It's like any story that there's a Big League Chew connection on that, and that really makes me happy. My brother Harry said that when they talk about the generational – uh, handing down of the tradition of Big League Chew. He, he said that, you know, Rob, it's not even so much fathers and moms passing it down to their kids. It's like the 12-year-olds having the 10-year-old kid on it say, hey, you want to try some of my bubble gum? It's like the generations have become so compressed now that a 12-year-old is really a different generation than a 10-year-old. And when the 10-year-old sees that that's what the cool guys are blowing, those bubbles, uh, that's what they gravitate to. I can't I can't imagine that next summer we're going to be selling our one billionth pouch of Big League Chew. It's just, no wow. pun intended, it's mind-blowing. It really is. And I am as grateful as can be because, you know, to win six games in the Ivy League was a big deal for me. But who knew that it was going to be the launching pad for me, that all those coaches that helped me out along the way, starting with my dad, Mr. Quinn in Little League, Don Lang, the, the high school coach. When I grew up, when I, when I was a kid, and I said, when I grow up, I want to be like Mr. Lang. He taught elementary school, and he was a high school varsity coach. He did it for 42 years, the entire length of the high school. The high school is now a middle school because of population shifts. So Mr. Lang was the only coach the Bernabisons ever had, and the guy was just wonderful. And I think when you have that kind of influence, people who love and respect the game and teach you how to play the game and how to say thank you to the umpire at the end of a game – or thanks to the fans, the moms and the pops and the and the and the uh, the classmates who came to the game. Hey, thanks for coming. Appreciate that. There's something that's humbling about baseball. The guys who failed two times out of three are all in the Hall of Fame. And and the, the opportunity is, as a pitcher, you can lose you know forty even fifty percent of your games, and you can have yourself a career. And that's a pretty cool thing. I love it. That's why baseball is my favorite because it's the most difficult. And you know, there's a lot of effort and a lot of work, and there's a lot of mental that you have to get over. And I think you know you're 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 a testament to that, man. And that's why that's why I love this story. I think it's an awesome one, Rob. This has been absolutely fantastic. Sincerely, sincerely appreciate it, Rob Nelson, the founder and creator of Big League Chew. Rob, really appreciate your time today, man. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having oh, me. Congrats! A billion? Wait, wait, wait! A billion packs? Yeah, a billion. That's an insane number, right? Like, did you ever think when you started, like, even a million was on, like, the table? You know, the first contract we had with Ridley was a three-year deal. They thought it was a cute novelty. And and so, no, I never thought we'd see a million. And a billion pouches, I've got three kids, and they're, they're all going to be heading off to college soon. And I'm grateful because, uh, you know, without the bubblegum, We'd be struggling a little bit. And, you know, my dad had a great saying when the thing started taking off and we were around the dinner table and my brother Ed saying, you know, Rob, soon you're going to be rich and famous. And, and, and my mom said, I'm not sure that that's a great thing. And my dad said, I think if you can be comfortable and anonymous, you're going to have a great life, son. And 
we used to call it Dad 101. We still do. He'd had those basic things, and that's all I think anybody wants to be. Be a little bit lucky and be comfortable and, and anonymous and just be a good person. I have no complaints. Just be a good person, man. That, that's just, a, I'm sorry, I, that, you said it, and I was like, oh, a billion. And I was like, wait a second, a billion packs. That's like such an insane number. And kudos and congratulations. Couldn't happen to a, a nicer guy. Sincerely, again, one more time, Rob Nelson, founder and creator of Big League Chew, coming on the show. I uh, really, really appreciate it today, man. Thank you so much. Thanks again. We'll see you now. Bye.